Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The other week I mentioned uh, a commentary, and some of you have asked about that. It was uh, Phil Riken's commentary on uh, Ecclesiastes, and I mention it, and I know that if you do pick it up and you do read it, you'll recognize much of what I I say in my sermon, because I I do use uh, much of his material, uh, believing it to be uh, very helpful. We'll be looking at uh, verses 1 to 11, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Hear now the word of the Lord. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." Father, we ask now as we consider this, your word, that you would ignite in us a a passion, not for the things of this world, but but for our Savior and our delight, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Well, if you're anything like me, uh, when it comes to football, I'm not a big follower of football. I don't watch the Super Bowl unless the Eagles are in it which means I don't watch the Super Bowl. (laughs) But if you're like me, part of the best part of the Super Bowl is the commercials. Now, like I said, I haven't watched in a few years, but uh, I do remember a few years ago, one of my favorite commercials was played during the Super Bowl. It was the AT&T commercial called We Want More. And this is how it went. In that commercial, they were, I believe they were sitting in a classroom and And a man asks a group of children who are sitting on the floor, which is better, more or less? And the kids raise their hands, and a little girl chimes in, and she says, more is better than less. Because if there's more or less stuff, then you might want to have some more. Then your parents won't let you because they're only a little. If you really like something, we want more. We want more. Like, you really like it. You want more. And then the man answers, I follow you. 
And so that little commercial is silly. It was hilarious to, as it was played out on the screen. But what I believe it does is it summarizes the philosophy of our culture. We are a hedonistic, entertainment, pleasure-seeking consumer culture. Uh, more, I want more, more for a hedonist is always better than less. Uh, philosophically speaking, hedonism is, a, is kind of a school of thought that argues that pleasure and seeking that pleasure and having that pleasure is the greatest good. It's an intrinsic good. You should have it. And pleasure is indeed good. God made a good world and he wants us to enjoy it. But the blessing of pleasure, it, it ends up becoming a curse when we make it an, an idol. And that's what's happened in our culture. Uh, for example, think of a couple issues. Take abortion. Uh, abortion is an abomination. It's the killing of babies. And yet it's legal. Why? Well, the answer is not necessarily because one political party is in control, though that can make a big difference. That's true. The answer is because people value their desire for sexual pleasure more than they do the lives of unborn children. That's an example. That is hedonism. I take our national debt or the individual debt of consumers in our culture. Why? Why do we continue to dig deeper and deeper into debt? And the answer is because we value the, the pleasure of material possessions more than we value, say, the old-fashioned disciplines such as having a, a savings and personal response, responsibility. That's what hedonism is. And worst of all, the church is just as guilty. You turn on most uh, television preachers and you'll be filled with health and wealth prosperity swindlers telling you how to manipulate God to become rich. You attend any, many churches and you'll have a feel-good theology that, uh, that will help you have your best life now and how you can feel good here and now and how you should pursue that at all costs. And the reason we do that in the church is because we value the personal pursuit of our own personal fulfillment more than we value glorifying God. That is hedonism. That's the church, but on the personal level, we're just as guilty of, of wanting our comfort and what we can do to have pleasure over helping others, say, for example, and caring for others. Why? Because our outlook on life has been reduced to saying our happiness is our top priority. We won't let anyone or anything get in the way of robbing us of what we deserve. That is hedonism. When I was in college, the popular poster was that whoever dies with the most toys wins. That is hedonism. And so of all of Solomon's quests, I believe this one hits home the most. And with that in mind, what we're going to do is walk through uh, this quest. In the beginning of verse 1, Solomon tells us uh, the quest that he's actually going to go on. And let me outline it here. In the end of verse 1, in the beginning of verse 2, he tells us the outcome of his quest. And then in verses 3 to 8, I know I'm moving through these quickly, but we'll go over them. He gives us a detailed account of how he pursued his quest. Verses 9 to 10, he gives us an assessment of how he did on his quest. 
And then in, verses 11, in verse 11, he gives us the same conclusion he gave at the end of verse 1 and verse 2. In summary, Solomon says, I'm trying to find meaning and purpose apart from God in this world. I, I tried wisdom. That's what we looked at last week. I, I gave it a try, and it turned out to be vanity, but I didn't want to stop. I wanted to keep pursuing, and I do that. And so now I'm going to go on a, a, a pleasure quest. And by the way, I'm going to do it better than anyone. Why? Because I have more money, more liquor, more servants, more musicians, as we read, more buildings, more beauty, more entertainment, and more sex than anyone. Nobody has had more fun than me. And then I sat down and I thought about it. And this was the verdict. Vanity. Chasing after the wind. Profitless. It was a failure, that quest. That's the outcome. You cannot quench the thirst of life by drinking pleasure, says Legan Duncan, and he's correct. When I uh, first studied for this sermon, I I immediately thought of the time uh, years and years and years ago, right after high school, and my friend Jeff and I were driving to a party. We used to all meet at the the end of this long uh, dirt road. At the end of the road, there was a cliff, and that cliff overlooked the Delaware River. And you could swim, um, if you dare to, and you could hang out there, and, and that is where we met for our parties. And One occasion, probably after the third time that week, we had one of these parties. That's all we did. We were driving down that long road uh, to do it all over again after just doing it. And almost simultaneously, we said to ourselves out loud, is this all there is? We just keep doing the same old thing. We understood hedonism, we pursued it with gusto, but we were finding that it came up empty. The first time, maybe there was a thrill, but we were finding that it just didn't provide anymore. Well, Solomon knew how to party. He didn't have the limits we had. He didn't meet at the end of a long dirt road in some backwoods South Jersey town drinking cheap beer. (laughs) He had it all. And no one before him and no one after him had more. We want more. We want more. And Solomon said, well, I have more. And he used what he had to go on this quest. And as we turn to our text, we we learn immediately that this was a planned pleasure party. He he was thinking through what he was going to do. I said in my heart, says verse 1, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. He, he begins by talking to himself. He, he maybe was depressed after he went on this wisdom tour and, and tried to find meaning in that, and he came up empty there. And so he, he, he keeps going. Let's try something different. Let's do an experiment, he says. The word test is, is kind of telling us it's an experiment and a, a deliberate attempt to learn something from personal experience. That's what he wants to do. And the word pleasure shows what he wants to experience. And this is repeated twice. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom, verse 6. And then verse 9, and my wisdom remain with me. Solomon here is not taking some irrational leap into pleasure. It's not as if he got done with wisdom, it failed, and he said, ah, forget it, let's just get drunk and party. 
He, he's, going to get, he's going to party, but he, he's got a purpose to it. It was an informed hedonism. It was a, a controlled experiment. And he is the center of it all. Notice the self-centeredness of everything he says. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. I, my, myself. In fact, he says, I, my, myself, over and over and over again. Now, this is an autobiography, so he's going to have to talk about himself, of course. But it's a little over the top. And so we get a strong self of this self-indulgence in the pursuit of this self-centered pleasure. Now, turn to verse 2. Solomon basically summarizes for us not only the outcome, but the type of enjoyment he sought. We read, verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Now, laughter tends to be used of superficial fun. Um, the fun of a party, kind of what we were doing at the end of that dirt road on the Delaware River. And pleasure, in its general usage, is more thoughtful. And, and, and so basically, as, as Riken points out, he, he didn't leave anything out. He pursued both lowbrow and highbrow pleasure. He would have met at the end of that dirt road, but he also would have went to a swanky party in New York City to find this stuff out, both low and high culture. And none of it ended up satisfying. All kinds of pleasure failed to answer his problem. And in verses 3 to 8, Solomon catalogs the kind of pleasures he pursued. He begins with wine. Look at verse 3. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now, this is a popular way, uh, a popular way to find pleasure, drinking, getting drunk. Uh, we could, maybe it's drugs. We could replace that. It's, it's basically the same thing. It seems like he's going to give himself over to drunkenness, to partying in that sense. But that's not necessarily the meaning of this verse. Notice that he says, my heart is still guiding me with wisdom. He means that his wine tasting was kind of a controlled experiment. He wasn't giving himself over to drunkenness by, by drinking too much. He was drinking in moderation and then thinking through the experience that he was going through as he, he drank. He, one writer said he wasn't so much being an alcoholic as a, as a connoisseur of wine. He was, he was making careful use of the wine so that the, his appetite was sharpened and, in, and his enjoyment of it was enhanced. The point ultimately is this. Either he was getting drunk or he was doing this experiment as a connoisseur. He was seeking pleasure under the sun by using wine. Second, he tried works. Look at verses 4 to 6. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Now, we're told in 1 Kings 7 that it took Solomon 13 years to build his house. As an aside, it took him only uh, seven years to build God's temple. But it took him 13 years to build his house. And his house and grounds were exquisite. 
very detailed, down to the detail. Everything was handled with the utmost care and concern. And consider the, the scope of it. It doesn't say house or vineyard or garden. It says houses and vineyards and gardens and parks and pools. And when you reflect upon this and when you consider the splendor of it all, that you have this lush vegetation, there's beautiful fruit trees we're told about, there's flowing streams, it's not hard to see that what Solomon is doing is seeking to recreate the Garden of Eden. Oh, it's a secular Garden of Eden. There's no forbidden fruit in this garden, but he's trying to recreate that. And as I mentioned, he did it all for himself. He built houses for himself, planted vineyards for himself, made gardens and parks for himself. He didn't do this for the betterment of society, fruit trees for himself, ponds for himself. It was all for his self-gratification. And given the scope of it, given the scope of the projects, he needed a lot of money and he needed a lot of workers to run the daily operations. And that's what we find in verse 7 and following. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. And so he accumulated wine and great works and wealth and people to wait on him and women, all this for himself. You get the picture. Have you ever read The Great Gatsby? Or maybe you saw the movie, you get the idea. He'd put on these grandiose parties in this amazing home. But Solomon's parties were on a more grandiose scale. You have laughter here filling the halls of this colossal home. Wine is flowing. The money was endless. It's said in 1 Kings 10 that Solomon made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. And so no shortage of money. There was, there was music, says verse 8. And understand that they, he didn't like plug in his iPhone and, and start blaring music. He had to bring choirs in if there was going to be music. Music was rare. Uh, it was a rare pleasure in those days. Um, but Solomon could afford to bring into his home entire choirs to sing for his own pleasure. And so music was in the air. There's beautiful women everywhere. All this food. It's like a rap video that you would see on MTV. And every day they feasted. They feasted bountifully. In 1 Kings chapter 4, we're told 30 measures of fine flour, 60 measures of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fat and fowl. That's 1 Kings 4, 22 and 23. Now, some people put it as an estimate, suggested it would take 30 or 40,000 people to consume that much food each day. And so this is a big party. We didn't have that many down at the Rocks in South Jersey. It was a spectacle to behold. This is why in 1 Kings 10, we also read about the Queen of Sheba. She makes this trek along the through the desert, and she comes to see what she's heard about. 
this man and his parties and his wisdom. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She was breathless over this. She's a queen. And she was breathless at the vastness of this. And so Solomon sought pleasure with wine. He sought pleasure through great works. He sought pleasure through his waiters, through his wealth. And he sought pleasure through women. Notice, he says in verse 8, I got many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Now, the idea here is sexual. The many concubines, to be exact, is 300. That's what we're told. 1 Kings 11 says he had 700 wives and princesses with 300 concubines. And it's about one woman for every day for three years. And so he had more pleasure that way than anyone can imagine. And so works and, and, and wine and women, he had maids and, and money and music, you name it, Solomon had it all. He'd be on the cover of the Fortune 500 magazine, right? He, he, would, he would have celebrities, uh, singers singing at his birthday. There'd be supermodels there. I, I imagine not even Donald Trump could dream of building so many houses and have so many wives. And so that was the pleasure quest he was on. That's where he was heading. And, and after telling us what he did, cataloging the kinds of pleasures he pursued, he tells us how it worked out. His assessment is found in verses 9 and 10. I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whenever my eyes, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Basically, he's telling us, you'll never have this kind of fun. You can't pull it off. I can. You can't do it. You don't have the resources to have this kind of fun. Don't bother trying. You'll never accumulate as much as me. You may get some. You want more. You may get more, but you'll never have as much as me. He enjoyed it all. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. He did it better. Now, in Dr. Riken's commentary, he says, don't you find it hard not to envy the man? <laughs> he said, wouldn't you like to live like a king? All other things being equal, wouldn't you rather have a bigger, nicer house with better, more beautiful views? Don't you wish that you had someone to do all your work for you? or at least all the work you don't enjoy doing. Think of all the money Solomon had, he says, with all of the choirs and concubines. Honestly, if you could get away with it, wouldn't you be tempted to grab some of his gusto for yourself? And see, the truth is we, we actually do this all the time. Of course, not on the scale of Solomon, but we can be just as guilty. But here's the bottom line. In verse 11, Solomon tells us the outcome of living the lifestyle of the rich and famous. 
Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The word consider literally means to face, to look someone or something right in the eye. Solomon is facing up to his situation at this point. He's seeing his life as it really is, and it isn't pretty. It is vanity. He got pleasure from it. He says as much to us, but it's a striving after whim. Squeeze out all the pleasure you can, and there is still nothing to be gained from living under the sun. It only results in dissatisfaction. This is what philosophers call the hedonistic paradox. The more you pursue pleasure and get it, the less the pleasure you enjoy. More, more, more is never enough, and so you're never satisfied. John Rockefeller was asked, how much would be enough? And this is what he answered, just a little bit more. Uh, One more drink, you know, one more house. If I had uh, one more dollar, if I had one more car, one more servant, one more woman never gives you the satisfaction that you desire. And, and here's uh, the, the good news. That is the good news, actually. That there is the good news. If all the pleasures under the sun cannot satisfy your soul, then what should that tell you? It should tell you that under the sun is not going to give you the answer you want. It should cause you to look elsewhere. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the only explanation is that I was made for another world. See, life under the sun will never satisfy your longings. You were made for another world. That's the point. Now, let me say here, God God is not trying to ruin all your fun. I remember getting saved and somebody saying, How's life going to be noticing everybody else having fun and you stuck being a Christian? As if God's goal was to ruin my fun. He's not looking to eliminate pleasure. He's helping me find better and greater pleasure. See, God understands that, that true, lasting, meaningful pleasure is found ultimately in Him. We don't have to be rich to experience Meaningful hedonism, says one preacher. Let me illustrate what I'm, I'm speaking about with a story. Maybe you've heard of Eric Liddell or Little. Liddell was an Olympic athlete. He was known as the Flying Scotsman. You may know him from the movie Chariots of Fire. He was also a Christian and a missionary. Once he said to his sister, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. See, what made him delight in was not just the running and not just being fast, but in glorify and enjoying God by running and being fast. You see, it was because he did what he was doing out of his relationship with God that gave him the pleasure. And therefore, as the movie tells you and his life story tells you, he refused to race on Sunday. 
And, and so he refused to break the Sabbath at the 1924 Olympics. And therefore, he was forced to withdraw from the 100-meter race, which was his best race, his best event. Well, instead, what he did was enter the 400-meter, and he wasn't expected to do well at all in that race. And as he went to the starting blocks of the race, an American handed him a little piece of paper and in his hand, and with the quotation from 1 Samuel 2.30, those who honor me, I will honor. And so he went into that race. He ran with the piece of paper in his hand and not only won the race, but he broke the world record. And the point I'm making with this story is simple. His greatest pleasure was serving God. Even if it meant he couldn't run what gave him the greatest pleasure on this earth, winning that 100 meter, he wanted to please God the most. And his greatest pleasure was serving God. He was willing to put aside his earthly pleasure if it meant dishonoring the Lord. And yet, our great God, our good God, allowed him to end up enjoying both. And so it's not that pleasure is evil. As I said in the beginning, if it's, if it's pursued without God in mind, it's evil. Uh, when we make it an idol, it's evil. But pleasure in itself is not evil. I learned that lesson early on. My friend Jeff learned that lesson. As I mentioned in that story, we became Christians, as I, I guess you figured that, that I'm one. He, he's one. Um, and became a believer and a follower and a, a, of Christ. And see, once we were saved, we came to realize that the things of this world, that question we said, there has to be more, we realized there was more than worldly pleasures, but that God wanted us to enjoy them. But when you enjoy them, you enjoy them differently than before you were a Christian. Let me give you an example. We can enjoy wine which God gives to gladden the heart of man, says Psalm 104, verse 15. But now, as followers of Christ, the pleasure of wine reminds us of something greater. Even in the experiencing of it, in the joy of it at the moment, it reminds us of the blood of our Savior that was poured out for the remission of sin. We can enjoy our earthly homes. We can enjoy family and friends and parties. But now it reminds us that Jesus made a promise. In my Father's house are many mansions. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. We can enjoy earthly, our earthly homes. But even if we were to lose all that, we have heavenly homes waiting for us, ultimate pleasure. And we can enjoy the beauty of music, and we should, but in Christ the time is coming, says Revelation 5, when we will sing a new song to our Savior. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. You see, you'll never be as rich as Solomon. And that despite all the riches we enjoy here in America, that God has blessed us with, in Christ our riches are stored up for us in heaven. That's the reality. Where rust and moth cannot destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal, Jesus says in Matthew 6.20. See, in Jesus Christ our blessings are too deep to be measured. We have become partakers of the unsearchable riches of Christ, says Ephesians 3.8. And so I hope, 
I hope each one of you understands wherever you are in in this life's journey, what is being said. I'll close with this. Simply stated, the greatest joy and pleasure is the joy and pleasure we find in God. Psalm 16 says, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Fullness of joy and eternal joy cannot be approved upon. And nothing is more fuller. That's not a sentence I realize. Nothing is fuller than full. And nothing is longer than forever. And see, this joy, this eternal joy, this eternal pleasure comes to us through our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, Christ loves us so much, he doesn't give us more, 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 more things. He gives us the greatest of all pleasures. He offers it to us free of charge. He gives us himself. See, one Puritan put it this way, Christ is the very essence of all delights and pleasures. He's the very soul and substance of them. As all the rivers are gathered into the ocean, which is the meeting place of all the waters in the world, so Christ is that ocean in which all true delights and pleasures meet. Jesus is altogether lovely. His excellencies are pure and unmixed. He is a sea of sweetness without one drop of gall. You see what your problem is? Maybe when you began, you thought, man, I have... I have too many strong uh, um, desires and, 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 and seeking pleasure, but that's not the case. Our problem isn't that our desire for pleasure is too strong, and that's what keeps you into sinful pleasures. The problem is your desire for pleasure is too weak. C.S. Lewis came to that conclusion. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with wine and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Far too easily pleased. And so the call is not to settle Face up to the truth that as enjoyable as these world's pleasures can be, they cannot fulfill you. They cannot give you true meaning. Repent of your sin uh, of looking to the world for satisfaction. Seek forgiveness for your hedonistic quest of self-fulfillment. Turn your life over to Christ. Receive him today. In fact, this is what you should do. You should cry out to him, I want more, I want more, I want more. Just like that child. Cry out like a child, I want more. But I want more of Jesus. Give me more Jesus. And see, then, and only then, really, will you know in your heart and experience in your life the very essence of all delights and pleasures. You'll be, as one writer said, a Christian, a Christ-centered hedonist. Let's pray. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, how true it is that we settle for pitiful pleasures when ultimate joy and pleasure offered us in your Son.
forgive us. Give us hearts that seek you more, to desire you more, that we would find all our joy, even in the things of this world, because they, they are given by you and come from your good hand. And we pray in Christ's name.